Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. Kenjiro Nomura was a Japanese immigrant to Seattle in the early 20th century and the first regional artist to have a solo exhibition at the Seattle Art Museum when it opened in 1933. The incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II and his wife's post-war suicide changed him and his art. His work almost became forgotten. Now the paintings of Kenjiro Nomura are featured at the Cascadia Art Museum in Edmonds, Washington, and a new book by art historian Barbara Johns, Kenjiro Nomura, American Modernist and Issei Artist's Journey, has been published. The hope is that history will reflect the fact that Nomura, 65 years after his death, was one of the Northwest's premier modernists. Barbara came here to talk about uh, her work and uh, to enjoy the view and um, and to commiserate. I'll, I'll tell you, there were some very depressing uh, sections. The, uh, the incarceration during World War II, even though I was familiar with it and I've written about it, is depressing to go through, especially maybe in light of what's going on now. But, um, you know, with your work on Paul Horiuchi, this is really remarkable work. I'm grateful you came here today, and I'm more grateful for the fact that you do the work you do. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. I think that we had, a, a via email, a discussion about where a good place to start might be, and that first paragraph of the book, which I think we mentioned, um, is, is something where we could start. I guess it's uh, on page, um, at the very beginning. Page seven. Yeah. yeah. It's the first... It's the beginning of chapter one, uh, following an introduction, of course. And I suggested this passage to you. I'll read it first. The Immigrant. We can only imagine what it was like for 10-year-old Kanjiro Nomura to first sight Seattle on June 13, 1907. Together with his father, Harakuchi Nomura, and his mother, Shiu, he had boarded the Tosa Maru in Yokohama 15 days earlier. He must have heard stories about the land across the Pacific as long as he could remember, for it was his father's second journey. Now, as the Tosa Maru steamed into dock at Smith Cove, the young city rose on recently deforested hills above Puget Sound. Railroad tracks and two long docks lined the shore of Smith Cove, where the Great Northern Railway the nation's second transcontinental railroad stretched inland to the Great Lakes. The railroad baron and empire builder James J. Hill had bought 600 acres of Smith Cove as he negotiated the first direct shipping service between Japan and the United States. Only in the past dozen years had steamships made the long, often rough trip through the North Pacific without the aid of auxiliary sails. The Tosamaru from which Nomura and his family disembarked was part of the Nippon Yusen Kaisha, or NYK, shipping line, Hill's partner in the venture. The family continued their journey 35 miles south to Tacoma, undoubtedly on Hill's train. And I proposed, when you suggested reading parts of this book, that I read this paragraph because it's, um, to me, an interesting example of the relationship between research and storytelling. It may be because of my 
past years as a museum curator that my goal is always to bring as deep research as possible, but make it accessible to anyone, whether that person knows a lot about the subject or nothing. And so I don't write academies. Thank you. Um, Thank you for that. And uh, I can't. <laughs> I just can't. It's not in me. <laughs> and I don't have it. But um, when I look at this paragraph, almost every single sentence of that required research into a particular topic. And yet I hope it's a good story and will take you through. And so throughout the book, I really try to balance those two doing deep research, and I still, after 15-some years, consider myself a newcomer to Japanese-American studies. Um, what first put you on the track of researching these artists, like Kenjiro Nomura and Pohoriuchi and others? I was introduced to the work of Nomura and his colleague, good friend and business partner, Kamikichi Tokita, when I worked at the Seattle Art Museum in the 1980s. Um, I was my entry-level job as curatorial assistant, and the museum has paintings by both the artists from the 30s and a couple by Nomura from after the war. But I remember pulling out the stack at the racks in museum storage and finding these paintings in an uh, American realist style. I was really taken by them, and I had opportunities to exhibit them and to write a little bit about them, just catalog entries. But it was really after I had left museum practice and was working independently, I was commissioned to organize an exhibition about Paul Haruichi uh, at the Museum of Northwest Art in Lacanar. And I was to write a catalog also, and which was published by the museum and University of Washington Press. That's it, thank you. And at some point, the, we all agree that this, the story should be just as long as it need be, you know, to really tell the story of Horiuchi's life. There's quite a bit written about him, but I wanted to look at it all and really assess it again. And so that, in, in that book, I wanted to illustrate a painting by Tokita. Horiuchi was also Issei, or immigrant generation, but he was a good 10 years younger than the other artists. And he really, his, he, he really gained his recognition after World War II, unlike the others who were very well established before World War II. But I had to get permission from the heir to publish a painting. And I had met Tokita's eldest son, Shokichi, when I worked at SAM. In the, and long backstory there, but um, I reconnected with him, this time by email, I could find him, before it had been a search by telephone calls and postcards and all that. And he said, of course I remember you, and immediately invited me for lunch, showed me the translation of his father's diary from World War II that had recently, just recently been translated. He had taken it, that manuscript to UW Press to see if they were interested in publishing it. They were, indeed, but wanted the biography and story of his art around it, and I was commissioned to write that story. That led me to a dissertation <laughs> that I had long abandoned, 
and um, then a surprise introduction to the grandson of my next subject, Takuichi Fuji. Uh, that grandson is a scholar of Japanese art. He reads the old-style Japanese and was just completing the translation of his grandfather's wartime diary also. The three artists, Tokita, Fuji, and Nomura, were the three best-known Issei or immigrant generation artists, Japanese-American artists before World War II, in Seattle, I should say. So I wrote the book on Fuji, and each of these studies took me more and more deeply into Japanese-American studies. I'm an art historian. My field is modern art, European, but mostly American. So this was a new field to me, and I've had wonderful mentors along the way. And then each book has taken me more deeply into the field, and particularly the studies of these wartime diaries. Mm -hmm. So Nomura, there's a little bit published about him already, but I still felt both a desire and an obligation to complete the cycle. Mm -hmm. Do him justice in a full study. And so then how did the exhibit at the Cascadia Art Museum come to be? David Martin and I have collaborated throughout on this project. David is now the curator at the Cascadia Art Museum. Uh, for a long time he was a gallerist and specialized in early and mid-century artists in the Northwest. So he's known the Nomura family, the, the only son no, the artist Nomura had one son, George, and his wife Betty. Known them longer than I have um, and been very interested in the work. So we agreed from the beginning it would be a collaborative project. project. The book is primarily mine, as David has made a, a, contributed a chapter to it, and we agreed that the exhibition, he's curator of the museum, was properly his. Yeah. Right. Nomura's life had more than its fair share of tragedy, uh, not just the incarceration during World War II of Japanese Americans, but being separated from his family as a very young man. He came here to Smith Cove, and uh, it wasn't too long uh, where his family actually went back to Japan and left him here on his own to, to make a living. Um, his wife, he had a wife that committed suicide. There was the Great Depression of the 20s. Uh, and, and yet he created some of the most accomplished art of the 20th century uh, and helped establish Seattle's cultural scene. Mm -hmm. And yet it's not, till ni not uh, since 1960, 61, that there was a, a large exhibit of his work. Um, he's, he's essentially, until this book, um, almost forgotten and yet really instrumental, part of the group of 12. So, I mean, how... What's the question I'm trying to get out of this is that um, how does someone like this forgotten for such a long time? The wartime incarceration of Japanese Americans, I think, did damage to the Issei more than... I, I, I can't say. It destroyed lives. Uh, so many people had... They invested. He'd been here since he was 10 years old. Uh, he'd become a businessman, very proud businessman, first as a sign keeper, a sign, pardon me, sign maker, as a sign painter, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And 
then as the depression hit, uh, losing that business briefly and unsuccessfully trying a grocery business until he found, finally found some security and stability in a dry cleaning business. Um, and I should say these were all industries, small businesses in which the Issei uh, were very prominent. Uh, and he, his son made the point that he was always very proud to be an entrepreneur uh, because his father in Japan had left uh, with the Meiji and the modernization of Japan, left the generations old family practice of farming to become an entrepreneur himself, a, a tailor. And so his son George always made the point that the artist Nomura was very proud of his work as entrepreneur. But that was destroyed by the incarceration. They lost their home, they lost their business. I came across a letter in the pa few papers they left it behind, uh, an email to Betty Nomura, uh, George Nomura's wife, who has a painting. I couldn't find her anymore. It's an old email and I couldn't trace her. She has a painting by Nomura that her grandmother had gotten directly from him because with the orders to leave home, and they had to pack up everything they owned within a week or less, take only what they could carry. Her grandmother had had a shop next to the dry cleaning business that Nomura ran, saw Nomura in the back alley with a burn barrel, deeply upset and burning paintings. And she apparently asked him for one and he gave her one. I'm sorry, I couldn't. We don't know how much was burned, how much was already lost. Mm -hmm. um, Nomura had a very sympathetic landlord, John Morrison, uh, who owned the building that they, live, that they lived and worked in, in in the university district. And he saved their what, possessions they couldn't take with them, the paintings that Nomura had not destroyed. And he sold and returned the proceeds to Nomura, the, all the dry cleaning equipment. Sorry, Paul, that's a long answer, but, but I think the degree in which lives that people had invested in this country for decades were destroyed um, is hard to comprehend. Right. Some of the other background is that, uh, you know, Japanese Americans were considered potential spies at that time, so burning these paintings might have been to get rid of some of the evidence. I mean, it, it, that thing might have gone through Nomura's mind. Also, the sense of how important it was that his father, Kenjiro's father, uh, was um, an entrepreneur, is when you look at Japanese culture compared to, you know, U.S. American culture or North American culture, um, get, just give you one example, um, Kaze Nomori is a sake, and they had a Zoom tour of the brewery last year, and the current brewmaster is the latest in a line of 16 generations uh, from that family of brewmasters. Wow. That gives you some sense of the continuity of Japanese culture and why it would have been a big deal for Kenjiro's grandfather or for his father to uh, no longer to, to cast aside the farm and embark on something new. The, um, the solo exhibition at the Seattle Art Museum in 1933, this is a brand new art mu museum, and uh, here they decide Kenjiro Nomura should have a solo show 
um, shows that he was a pretty big deal, certainly in the 30s and later. Um, and also he was part of the group of 12. So maybe to talk about his standing uh, in the Seattle art scene in the early 30s, in the mm -hmm. 30s and, and beyond. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned the 1960 exhibition a couple times, and and let me first. Uh, that exhibition was proposed by George, his son, after no more died in 1956, and it included a little bit of the student work, and we're really lucky to have that going all the way back to say 1915, um, and and then post-war work, nothing from the wartime. And it was in 1990 that George took a package of wartime material out of storage and brought it to the Wing Loop Museum. He worked with his cousin, the artist Nomura's niece, June McKeever, Mukai McKeever, to produce a small catalog for the Wing Loop Museum of that wartime collection. And that wartime collection traveled throughout the region um, and uh, on occasion elsewhere in the country for the next 20 years. So that work became quite known. Betty Nomura used to say when she was still alive when I began this project that she really wanted Nomura to be known by more than the wartime work, the whole, you know, why an artist, which, who had such esteem in the 30s. So let me go back to that, to your question. He um, had shown he must have been exceptionally talented, really exceptional aptitude, because some of his earliest exhibitions, 1916, when he was studying art here, had moved here as a very young man, began to receive recognition in the mainstream press. I don't read Japanese. I had some of his colleagues' papers, in newspaper clippings translated, but I, there's nothing, I, I don't have any evidence or any means to go back to Japanese papers and look for that kind of material. I should say Japanese language papers published in Seattle. But certainly by 1930, he was, began to receive steady attention after receiving it throughout the tw in 20s. And as an example, um, in 19, I think, 32. <laughs> um, the Museum of Modern Art was in New York was then just three years old and they were doing regional shows, um, annual exhibitions representing regions around the country. Nomura was painting Puget Sound, which is in the cover of this book, was one of only four paintings to represent Washington State. So that's a really significant honor, I think. He continued to receive such honors, including winning first prize at, this, at the Northwest Annual, which was held every year, and that was what occasioned that solo exhibition at the Seattle Art Museum. And certainly it was a wonderful, fortuitous coincidence that the new museum building was open the same year he would have had that. He continued to receive honors, and Tokita had a large family, more children were born in the 1930s, and he effectively seems to have stopped painting by, certainly by the late 30s. Uh, Fuji's career here was interrupted by a couple moved to Chicago and then back. Um, 
but Nomura consistently continued to exhibit, including as late as 1939. He was one of six artists chosen to represent Washington State at the Golden Gate Exhibition, International Exposition in San Francisco that year. In 1940, Kenneth Callahan chose work of his from the museum collection already to exhibit in a regional show, so he persisted. But with World War II, losing all that he lost, the devastation of finding oneself behind double rows of barbed wire, behind armed guards, machine guns pointing inward, it's hard to fathom what that means. And then it was at the same time that a regional artistic identity began to be written, you know, somewhere around this Northwest school. Callahan, Morris Graves, Mark Toby, other people like that. Mm -hmm. um, in the 30s, he was painting the urban landscape and was considered, considered a radical. Um, looking at the paintings from that era, they seem alive and vibrant, but not necessarily radical. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about why he had that label. That was a label given in the San Francisco Chronicle article, pardon me, San Francisco Examiner, I believe it was, uh, 1925. He had been selected for an exhibition in Oakland. He and Tokita, just two, the only two artists from the Northwest. And it was illustrated in the San Francisco paper and reviewed by a prominent critic. Uh, and it was called, it was hung in the radical section. There's nothing about the work that seems radical today, but I think that's a reflection of the state of the Bay Area, probably the Northwest, certainly many other areas around the country. And as I try to describe in here, for a painting, the subject is easily recognizable in this particular painting. It's boats at, at dock, fishing boats at dock. But the, it's not as if you're looking through a window as I sit here looking out your window, Paul, with rows of boats, distant mountains across the lake, you know, a whole vista. These are close-up images cropped. If you think about how a camera works, you crop and you crop shapes it makes, and in that cropping, things become, the geometry of things is more prominent. You see things as shapes besides just what they represent. And it was, modernism in this sense is showing the means of construction. You know, this is a painting put together by shapes and lines and everything. It's not just the illusion of looking out a window at something. But this tension between the two of showing how something is made. I mean, you could think of Picasso's cubism when he really took that to I put extreme in quotes. So those ideas about filtering down and showing that's, that's the modernism in, and that's what at the time seemed radical. Yeah. We, we talked about the, the wartime art a little bit first in into I, I there I go again yeah. I use the word interned it's, is it in the book where the the language of you of really calling it what it is incarceration is mentioned right and, and since I've seen that a couple of times since I read the book 
he was incarcerated with his family um, in Puyallup at first at a place called Camp Harmony, uh, um, ironically enough, and then later at Minidoka in Idaho. Uh, and he used that time to create remarkable work that you were just talking about that's toured for 20 years. It was bundled up, put in storage. Um, but that work he did in the camps, boy, does that really give us a sense of what it was like with a with the water tower, with, uh, you know, views of the latrines and everything else. We really, and of course, uh, the inmates, I guess we can call them, the people incarcerated, were not allowed cameras. So painting and drawing was the way that this was documented. And we have, mm-hmm. we have a world-class artist giving us a sense of what it was like. Mm-hmm. It's, it's also interesting because Nomura's love of color uh, really comes through, particularly those Pialop. And he also had not done figurative work since his student years. In the, all the landscapes, views of boats and whatnot, a few from the 1930s and 20s, there's um, almost no figurative work. He did a lot of studies as, as a, when he was studying here as a young man. But here again, this, these images take on a specif- specificity um, as if he needed to document the historical happenings, different from the, what you could call them, almost timelessness of the lands- ur- urban landscapes of the others. If there are figures in those urban landscapes from Seattle, they're just very diminutive, almost stick figures, just notations. But these are... are very specific. You know, there's some with mothers and children and fathers and old men and people working in the kitchen. So, uh, and the sketches, um, we're lucky to have all so many preparatory sketches or um, also have a real granular specificity. Even, even to the labeling of the garbage cans, section A, which was the section in which Nomura lived, um, or others kind of so-called streets, but there were just the alleyways between barracks. Do you think he was, what went through his head was, I've got to document this. This is an extraordinary thing. It's a horrible thing. Uh, Tokita writes, you read, you included some diary samples from Tokita about uh, how yeah. uh, he was not happy about what was going on and how he wasn't going to go along with certain things, but then did. And so we get a sense, at least from his good friend, that uh, he wasn't taking this lightly, and yet Nomura, we, I mean, he channels whatever angst he might have had into this work. And yet, I struggled when I first started writing about these in Nomura's case, Um, because you'll see his, his love of color, his skill at composing rhythmic, you know, really rhythmic uh, compositions. And then there's little bits of red and green just flickering all over throughout. I mean, mm-hmm. as if he couldn't resist. Mm-hmm. Here's, yes, here's one with the fire buckets that were red. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that little bit of laundry and that little bit of red shoes and red sweater mm-hmm. and little bits of that give it a, a veneer, initially, if you glance at them, of, hmm, you know, seeing that. And then the red and green. And compared... No, I should say Nomura left almost nothing in writing. 
we have no letters, unlike the other, other artists that I worked with. Nothing, certainly nothing from the wartime, only a couple statements from the earlier years. So in the case of writing this book, it really, I was reliant upon just looking and looking at what all the paintings and drawings he left. Looking and looking and trying to make sense of them, along with, of course, all the historic context that you bring. So I struggled. I struggled for a while to, f to say, what is really going on here? Mm -hmm. And began to see, yes, he's showing the workers in the kitchen, the crowds of people crowded together, the milling around when standing around, when it's forced and forced leisure. Mm -hmm. People had given up businesses, school, mm -hmm. and everything. That one painting, if you keep going further, uh, of the um, uh, the sky, the, the, the sunbeams coming through the sky in Idaho, uh, I mean, just that oh. is uh, that's a, That's a good example. Yeah. Um, here it is. There it is. And it's George Nomura, when these were brought out of the sun, uh, named Name, gave names to these. Mm -hmm. So this one is called Barracks and Water Tower. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's signed and dated, as mm -hmm. are those of Pialop. And this one says Kanjiro Nomura, 1943. Yeah. And this one too baffled me for a long time because you describe, yes, there are dark clouds over there, but they're very prominent, big sunbeams coming down, radiating onto the landscape below. And I, I was puzzled about that one too and then began to look, and I, I was in Idaho, and you can see the sun break through the sky like that. It really does have that sense of almost tangible sunbeams coming down uh, sometimes. But then you look here as an army truck and a soldier carrying a gun walking along the road. So it's always embedded, you're, you're never free never free from that. Just in case you think uh, this is a pastoral scene, there's that to remind you that, yeah, yeah. no, we're incarcerated. Yeah, yeah. Did you visit Minidoka? I have, yes. What is there? What's left there? The first time I visited, I went with the Minidoka pilgrimage, which is usually organized every year. Uh, began in the 70s, I believe. The artist Raja Shimamura, who you may know, was instrumental and one of the people who helped start that uh, but there's, until, the, until COVID, there's been a pilgrimage every year, and I went several years ago um, when I was writing the Fuji book. I wanted to have a sense of place. I was surprised that there's more. The, right here in the book is Building the Stone Gate, 1943, a little sketch, just four by six inches by Nomura. But that stone gate, the, or the base of it, still exists. And the, it's now a National Historic Site run by the National Park Service, and I was really impressed by the amount of work on the site. The, the concrete pads of buildings, many of them still remain. They have had an archaeologist working on site, or had when I first visited, who's been able to lay out and name, identify the different buildings according to old camp maps. There, uh, when, after the war, the barracks buildings, the, the land was divided up 
160 acres given to returning vets. Nisei did not qualify. These are white veterans. And then one of the f barracks buildings were given to use as, you know, outbuilding on, on the farmland. The Park Service is trying to get as many of those buildings back as they can. Uh, there's also a recreational hall. Um, there was a warehouse. And they're really committed to continuing. I'm trying to remember what else is there. Importantly, there was also a honor sign, honor roll sign, with a Japanese ceremonial garden immediately behind it. And that garden was designed by Mr. Kubota. Fujitaro Kubota. Fujitaro Kubota of Kubota Garden. Yeah. And he was the chief gardener there. So I was surprised how much is left. And when I first visited, they talked, absolutely planned. Uh, I visited just before COVID broke in February 2020. And it just opened and then immediately had to close an education center, which is wonderful. Um, represents really a lot of work. So I'm delighted. The artists are illustrated in there, the stories. Mm -hmm. When you look at paintings like Shopping Center, Dragon Dance, City Lights, among others, there's a huge shift to abstraction that also seems quite radical. Uh, I mean, even looking at it at today's eyes, it seems radical. Also seems, you can, you can see many elements of his heritage in there as well, at least I can. Um, did this shift happen, you think, because of innovations in the painting world? I mean, he's reading magazines and he's, you know, having tea with people who are reading magazines and talking about this work. Or do you think circumstances in his personal life help, prompt, helped to prompt that um, sort of evolution? Or do you think it's a little bit of each or something else? Mm, I, I think it's probably much more that he was very interested in art and reading what he could. His son, uh, George, when they moved back to, and you're talking about paintings 1950, around there, yeah, uh, 50. So um, his son George remembers that, that his father would ask him to stop at the library on his way home from school and pick up books about modern art. By then, people he had known before the war Kenneth Callahan, Mark Toby, others were painting in an abstract style. So it was, it was very much in the air, very much part of things, both in the Northwest and famously in New York with the explosion of abstract, I can't say explosion, but with abstract rise of abstract expressionism. So it's very much in the air. And this was in the 1930s. I mean, George Takawa would make the point that these men were really serious about art they talked about it, they read about it, they, they knew Asian art, they knew Western, both European and American art. They were really knowledgeable artists. And I'm sure that Nomura pursued that interest once he was out and resettled. So there were really hard times resettling afterward, uh, along with the illness, depression of his wife and, and her, her suicide. But I have to think it's primarily driven by his interest in art. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, you talk about the return after uh, 
the internment. He didn't want to come back right away. Um, they actually did evictions of people. And the art community here in Seattle wasn't like, okay, this long ordeal is over. There was a bit of a standoffishness from the arts community towards Nomura and other artists like him. I suppose. I, I, I really don't know, except that... Um Tokita died in 48. Fuji, Mendoke, he, after the war, he settled briefly in Ogden, where, an older, uh, where one of his daughters was living, and then eventually settled, by the, by the late 40s, settled in Chicago, where he lived the rest of his life. Nomura is the only one who regained artistic rec reputation, recognition. And he did immediately start to win attention. Immediately, let me. There's a couple years gap in there, um, because it was not till early spring of 1947 that he really began to paint again, and that was with the strong encouragement of Paul Horiuchi. Yeah. And also a gallery owner. A gallery owner, exactly. So, Nomura. Uh, George would say, and June McKeever in her book for the Winglet Museum describes how Paul Horiuchi would come to his door, urge him to go out on painting sketching trips. And when Nomura finally did this in 1947, beginning the earliest is dated March of that year, there are dozens of watercolors and sketches. I mean, again, the energy kind of bursting out once he started. And he immediately, that fall, entered the Western Washington State Fair. There was a big art exhibition, and he again won recognition. The same fairgrounds where he and his family had been incarcerated. That leads us to the part you were going to read on page 93, I think. Oh, it does. Okay, your request. Okay. Please. Okay. So... I talked a little bit, you asked me earlier about how a painting of his that looks beautifully crafted, wonderful, lively painting, but how it could be considered radical. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to help readers also, I had to understand too, to, for myself, how, how did he make this transition just artistically? And this, what you've asked me to read is a little trying to help describe some of this transition from um, beautifully crafted essentially American realist style of painting to work that's completely abstract. It's a section of the, uh, chapter four called A Return to Painting. With his resumption of painting, Nomura began by returning to some of the Issei artist's favorite sites of the 1930s. He explored the streets of his own neighborhood, the city's waterways, and shoreline sites along Puget Sound. The numerous paintings and sketches from 1947 trace his artistic explorations as he began to turn from realism to abstraction. Lucid watercolors open vistas onto buildings and docks, water and skies. Pencil drawings trace compositional development and note colors. A few of these drawings transform structures into linear vectors, hints of his abstract work to come. In an early composition, 
Houses rendered in the wet and dry brush of watercolor rise on the hill above Lake Union, where tender springtime hues display numerous color sensibility. The sunstruck sides of buildings are left white, allowing the blocky structures to merge into geometry where sunlight and shadow meet. Several paintings picture the brick red and rust brown buildings of an industrial area, possibly along Salmon Bay, in variously considered compositions of the same view. In the more finished versions, the edges of buildings are outlined in black and others dissolve without definition. Opaque white accentuates the black, isolating building elements as geometric forms and flattening the perspective in semi-abstract resolution. Similarly, a series of paintings in watercolor or oil transform old pilings along the shoreline of Puget Sound, where Nomura resembles the seascape into blocks of colors with a piling as pattern black accents. In one, tendrils of giant kelp encircle the scene, an evocative mix of art and nature. The pace of invention within several months makes palpable Nomura's renewed energy for painting. In September 1949, Nomura exhibited his new work at the Western Washington State Fair, the same fairgrounds where he and his family had been incarcerated in 1942. Think about that the next time you go to the Puyallup Fair and have a corn dog, huh? Yeah, what was happening right. there? Yeah. <clears throat> there is now a memorial uh, to the incarceration um, by, I've forgotten which gate, I'm going to say gate D, but I'm not positive, with a sculpture by Jerry Sudikawa. Sudikawa. Yeah. How do you think Kenjiro Nomura is going to be remembered? I hope he's remembered as a great American artist. I mean, unquestionably, to my mind, he is and deserves it. Uh, the exhibition at the Cascadia Art Museum has been really well received, I'm pleased to say. There are two more months to it. And uh, this uh, book, I'm really pleased to have done it. The inf I hope it's readable to everybody. The information is also there for scholars of Japanese America, of art history. I really hope that it will go. The Asian American Studies Association this year is featuring, featuring uh, a segment on art and art history. And um, I am not attending. I didn't submit a paper. But I hope that increasingly there's recognition that this is part of American art. It's not a segregated segment off there or having to do just with wartime or anything. These artists were received as fully as American artists during their heyday and deserve every bit to be part of it. In this era where Muslims or immigrants or trans people could be the next target of attack and restrictions on their rights, is there something to learn from Japanese culture which for centuries has valued the inner arts, um, the work of individuation? Even during World War II, uh, the uh, operative phrase by many Japanese Americans was Tikita kotowa shikataganai. What has been done can't be helped. I mean, it's an acceptance, which is a very high level of consciousness and very difficult. Easier said than done to achieve that. Um, but that was a huge lesson that I got from reading about the uh, incarceration during World War II. 
Uh, but we're in a very loaded age where something like what happened to Japanese-Americans could happen again at any moment. Is there something to be learned from Japanese culture about dealing with that? I don't feel qualified <laughs> to no. answer that. There was a lot of resistance and violence also, less so, somewhat less so at Minidoka. I think that more, more accounts, more histories of those are coming out more of the lost lives, uh, the despair. Uh, so, yes, I've heard, heard the phrases you quote many times, but I think also um, I'm hesitant to, to put a blanket over that kind of attitude and behavior. I just, I don't feel qualified to say. Mm -hmm. That Ronald Reagan signed the bill to give reparations to Japanese Americans uh, should give give us hope. Uh, somebody like Ronald Reagan. For well, he resisted, he did not want to. <laughs> he was, again, <laughs> and go. originally the commission was authorized, referring to the commission on, on wartime, oh, I've forgotten the proper name. <laughs> uh, well, we know what we're talking about. We're talking uh, about the bill to give reparations to Jap incarcerated right, Japanese Right, and a formal apology, to right. issue a formal presidential apology on behalf of the people of the United States, and that came in 1988, after years of pushing by Nisei, or, or American-born uh, Japanese Americans, in and, Congress. And Mike Lowry. And Mike Lowry, many, many others, yeah. uh, pushing. The commission was authorized, um, I've Paul, I should have looked up my dates before I talk to you. I want to say in 1982 and 83 was published mm -hmm. after two years of study, something like 750 interviews for many Japanese Americans. It was the first they had talked about their experiences. This was something to be, um, first of all, internalized guilt, uh, but also just something, as you say, culturally to put behind oneself, get on with your life the best you can, could. Um, I have friends who say their grandparents and parents never talked about it. And interestingly, Tom Akeda, who's founding director of Densho, which is a superb online site founded here and, and managed here, to, uh, with the purpose of interviewing survivors of the camps, and many, many, it's, Densho is now some 25 years old. Many of those early survivors have since died, both first and second generation, but mostly second. Um, but we're so lucky to have the re these interviews that are recorded. And they're also segmented and indexed. So if you want to look up art at Minidoka, you can, you can do that kind of and find people who talked about it. It's a wonderful resource. And Tom continues interviews, but in the recent Den Show newsletter online, he speaks of his, his next in-depth study is going to be on the settlement period, because again, few people have talked about this, and he's interviewing his own father, and it's the first time in all these 25 years of this work that Tom will be able to do that. Tom and I are going to speak together at, at the Cascadia Art Museum during the exhibition, and I hope we'll talk about this experience of his. What project is next for you? I have uh, completed the cycle of these books. I knew doing the Nomura book, it would be the, the latest I 
felt a desire and also somewhat of an obligation to write about Nomura, having written about the other artists. And because he was the, certainly had the longest history of exhibitions and um, was so well received during the 30s. There's one more project that is waiting. My part of it is mostly done. When I wrote about Takuichi Fuji, I had permission to publish half of the artist's wartime diary. The grandson has long hoped to publish a facsimile edition of the entire thing with text and image. This is an illustrated diary. And I, when I first saw this document, I didn't have the experience to understand its importance. But people like Tom Maqueda, the distinguished historian Roger Daniels, have called this one of the seminal documents, certainly by an Issei throughout the war uh, of the experience. So University of Washington Press will publish a facsimile edition with a grandson's translation, my notes annotating the Japanese-American experience. It'll be a small, very select you know, book, but that's coming up after finish. Then I'm writing about my own father. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for coming here, and thank you for all the good work you do. It's a real honor and privilege to be able to have this kind of exchange, and I'm very grateful. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for the invitation. The Steinbrook Native Gallery, located near Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle, features fine art of the Northwest Coast from emerging and established artists. A link to their site at CascadianProfits.org. Cascadian Profits is a project of the Cascadia Poetics Lab in Seattle, Washington. Check us out online at CascadiaPoeticsLab.org.